This message by Pastor Alexander Rajiri was delivered at Faith Fellowship Church in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. For more information, please call 608-935-2655 or visit us at www.dodgevilleffc.com. Chapter 23, verses 13 to 33. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say, To the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. This is God's word. I read up about um, the process of story making. And apparently there's this thing called Freytag's Pyramid, which is a, uh, an individual by the name of Gustav Freytag had created this um, structure for successful story writing. And it was a picture of a pyramid. And the way it works is with any successful story, you start out with what he called an exposition, 
which is basically just um, a revealing of main characters and settings and whatnot. And as you continue on the story, at some point there's a conflict. Something happens that causes a, a problem with the main characters. And from that point on, you go up the pyramid, which is called the rising action. The events that uh, follow from that problem, the steps to resolve the problem. At the peak of a story is what is called the climax. It's the turning point in the story when there's no going back, when something happens that's irreversible, that totally changes the direction of the story. And from that point on, it continues down to the falling action. The events that follow that climactic moment in the story. After the falling action, then comes a resolution. Something that resolves that original conflict and problem. And you look and you read stories... And you see that happen. In the beginning, there's a setting of players and characters, and then there's something occurs that causes an issue with rise and fall of action, a climactic moment at some point in the book, and then a resolution at the end. Sometimes it's tragic. Sometimes it's that happy ending. But there's always that end um, resolve. You and I are living in a story. And this is not just a story that you read in a fictional novel. This is not a story that you can go to a movie theater and watch. This is what one author wrote, the story of reality. And you're part of it, and I am too. It started out with God and God alone. Perfect harmony and fellowship within Himself. This triad of love. And then at some mysterious point in timeless time, God creates. And there's this flow of creation of stars planets, galaxies, leaves, plants, creatures. And He creates human beings made in His image, made to have a relationship with Him, a communion with Him, a connection to Him. God is love and love has interaction And there is a desire within God to interact with His precious creation, mankind. But something happens. There's a conflict. Mankind chooses to rebel against God. Mankind becomes estranged from God. The creation of God becomes infected with a disease called evil. And all throughout history, from that point, has been this struggle between creation and the Creator. And our Bibles tell us of the struggle. But woven throughout that struggle, 
And that rising action is our hints and promises that something will happen to change that, to resolve that conflict. You and I are on the falling action side of the pyramid. You and I are actually living in this grand scheme on the other side of what was called the climax of history. The climax of history happened on Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary is just in the Bible times was considered outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Today, we don't 100% know where Mount Calvary is. There's a traditional site that they have a church built upon now that has been considered the, the place of the crucifixion of Jesus for many, many years. But then in the 1800s, there was a second proposed spot, just a little bit north of this spot, because they found a hill that looked like a skull. And the word Calvary is a Latin word that means the place of the skull. That's what Calvary means. It's also what Golgotha means in a different language. You read in a different account, Golgotha, it's the place of the skull. So maybe it's the skull-shaped hill, maybe it's where the church is, we don't know. But it is the place where the climax of history happened. What we read in our text is a description of that climax. And when you read about and learn about what happened on Mount Calvary, you realize immediately that there's an audience. I used to be in the drama club in high school, and there was always a, a, a play on stage, and then there was an audience watching what happened. And on the stage was the event on Mount Calvary, but there were people watching we read in Luke uh, that there was a Pilate who was a leader, a political leader. There was a Herod who was a religious leader. There were priests and people. And you read other accounts that there were people who were spitting on this Jesus. There was this audience watching what happened who got to see firsthand the climax of history. What we're going to see is the perspective of these two audiences, because not only was there the audience of what we read, but there was a second audience. You see, not only was the, the play on stage and the audience sitting there, but there's also a backstage that knows what's going on. The first audience we'll look at is what we call the earthly audience. The audience that was there on earth, human beings, watching what happened. And I want you to picture yourself as one of those members of that audience, standing there, 
looking up at that hill and seeing a man there. A man that maybe you heard about, but never met. A man maybe you did meet, and now witness. But there's a man. And as I prayed over that picture in my mind, Lord, what comes to mind when you think of that earthly audience? And the first thing that you see is shame. Shame. People in that audience would have thought, what a shameful scene in front of me. We've been going through a a teaching series by Keith Green. And one of the things he said is that when we think of a cross, in our day and age, the cross has kind of been glamorized. We see crosses as jewelry. We see crosses as tattoos. We see crosses as decorations. In the ancient world, that would have been unthinkable. To the mind of a person in that day, the idea of a cross was revolting. It would have been disgusting. And to be associated with a cross would have been shameful. Thankfully, we know we love and cherish the cross, and we have crosses around us because we know what it represents. But in that day, it would have been shameful. Keith Green said it would have been like somebody, you wouldn't have watched somebody in our own day walk around with a necklace with an electric chair attached to it. It was a symbol of death. In fact, it was a symbol of death to criminals. Sure, there would have been the occasional individual who was trying to deliver the Jewish people from Roman oppression, but the majority of time they who were crucified were criminals and deserved it. And it would have been a disgusting picture to those who watched. They would have seen a man who deserved this kind of a punishment and to associate with that. And you know, something you and I as Christians will experience is that in our own day, there is a sort of shameful attitude that the world will have to our faith. Think about it. Jesus was not crucified because he fed the 5,000 their bread and their fish. There were things about what Jesus said and did that was welcomed and cherished. But there were claims that he made. And those claims created anger and motivated these people to want to crucify him to a cross. Yet we read in Hebrews 12 that Jesus, in the face of that, it says that he endured the cross despising the shame. He wasn't moved by it. It didn't deter him. If they were going to think he was shameful, so be it. Now as I think about in our own day and age, there are things that we as a church do 
that society as a whole will not think of as shameful or, or disgusting. We as a church are to reach out, and frankly, we don't as much as we ought to. At least when I search my heart, I know. But what are those things that we as believers in Jesus hold to? That will come up in conversation or come up in our actions that the world will think of as being, that's a shame that you think that. Because it's going to happen. It happened to Jesus. And if we're going to be faithful followers of Him, it's going to happen to us. And I was thinking about this and I thought, what are those things that in our own day and age that we hold dear that would be just despised by the world? And the first thing that came to mind because of the controversy, because of the way of our society, we as believers hold to a stance that the only legitimate, accepted, Sexual relationship in the eyes of God is that between a man and a woman in a lifelong marriage covenant. That's radical. And to hold to that kind of a belief is going to stir up anger and is going to label us as shameful people. Not only that, but what came to mind was the belief that we as followers of Christ truly believe that only in Jesus Christ and faith in Him is the only legitimate method and way to salvation and eternal life. Such that any other belief system is an illegitimate expression of reality. We hold to these beliefs, and yet those are the two that our own day and age reject. But think about this. When you go to churches that do not follow the Word of God, that do not hold to the truths of the Bible, there are two things that they promote more than anything else. The first is the open and affirming stance of any sexual relationship and union. So much so that they even will wave flags in front of the church building that represent sexual expression. Think about that. And not only that, but one of the core teachings you'll find among that gathering is the open inclusion of any Explanation of reality, any religion, any belief, any system is a legitimate interpretation of reality. Those two things. And for us as believers to hold to the Word of God, we will experience that attitude of shameworthy. Not only shame, but you as an standing there in the audience watching that scene will see not only that shame, but you'll see rejection. For there is Jesus up on that cross. But where are His followers? He had a big gathering. Where are they? He's up there alone with a small handful of women and maybe a disciple and a half if you include Peter from a distance. 
Where are they? He was rejected. Where's the one standing next to the cross saying, I'm with him? I think sometimes we as Christians need to ask ourselves, are we willing to associate with Christ no matter what? Even if it means we'll be rejected. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we as Christians, why I as a Christian, hesitate and refrain from speaking and living in front of a a non-Christian environment. Why I don't, why I know I should, and it comes in a desire within me, but I I hesitate because of rejection. And I think we as Christians fall into the trap as really living as the fullness of our Christianity only among Christians when it is socially acceptable, when it is praised, when it is seen as a good thing. But yet when God calls us to go into all the world and to express the life of Christ to everyone, no matter the person, there should be not an ounce of fear of man within us we should be willing to live in here as we do out there. And that's why the number one complaint against the church is that you hear it, they're full of hypocrites. Why? There's a disconnect between inside the walls and outside. The earthly audience sees shame, they see rejection. What do they also see? They see suffering. Just picture that scene as you stand there on that on that uh, valley before the hill, and you look and you see there's a man, he's nailed to a cross, there's open wounds all over his body, there's a crown of thorns around his head, he's struggling to breathe, he's talking to, to God, his God, and and. And we can't even begin to imagine the internal suffering that he had in his own soul as God laid the sins of the whole world upon him. Suffering. Brothers and sisters, as Christians following Christ, we will experience suffering if we are to take up our cross and follow him. The Bible says somewhere that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, we pray and we talk about the persecuted church and there is a persecuted church but the Bible to some extent says that everyone in some way, if we live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That may not be from government intervention, it may. It may just be from members of our own household. Jesus said that your enemies might be the the members of your own household. Jesus said that that society will will hate you for my name's sake, Jesus said. Maybe it's within a church. There's conflict. There's persecution. Maybe it's within the workplace. You live a godly life in Christ and all of a sudden they're trying to push you out. Fill your slot with somebody else who's 
more on board with their agenda for moving forward. You see shame, you see rejection, you see suffering. Fourthly, what the earthly audience sees is defeat. Defeat. Think about it. Imagine you're one of his followers and you you followed him and he gave a message of the kingdom of God. He said, repent, the kingdom of God is here and you're looking forward to the inauguration of the kingdom of God and you think that the Messiah has come, Rome is going to be gone, we're going to live in that beautiful, uh, wonderful time of of the reign of the Messiah. You left your job, you followed him around, you listened to his teachings and there he is. On the electric chair. The ancient one. Though the ancient one is far worse. By all appearances he was defeated. And that's why the mockers mocked him and said, He saved others, can't he save himself? If you are the Son of God, call on angels. Come down from there. It looked like he was defeated. The earthly audience saw shame, they saw rejection, they saw suffering, they saw defeat, but there was another audience. If you look behind the curtain, you see the backstage, and you see a heavenly audience. Behind the scenes of this story that we are a part of, is a spiritual reality in which there is God, there are angels, there are demons, there are beings that are watching. And they see what's going on. You want to know what the angels would have saw when they saw Jesus on that cross? They would have seen honor. Imagine that. A man on a cross. Honor. And that's a word that we don't see too much in our day and age because it's so foreign to our society. But what Jesus did by going to that cross was the most honorable thing a man could do. And I, when I meditate on that scene and I look at Jesus, I say, there's a man that I want to be. A man of honor. Why? Because God told him to do it. And he said, I have not come to do my will, but I came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was to give his life for others. To be a sacrifice for others. And our society needs men of honor who are willing to lay down their own personal pursuits and pleasures and take up their cross, do the will of the Father, and give their lives for their family, and give their lives for their society, give their lives for the church of Jesus Christ to be men of honor. I believe God is looking for men of honor. And I'm praying that God raises up men of honor in the church. And I'm praying that God makes me a man of honor. That it's not about me and my own pursuits, my own pleasures, my own desires, but it is God's will for my life, for you, and for those in my life.
And I pray every man here in this room has the same heart. To be men of honor. To follow Christ up that mountain. And to be willing to give our lives for the sake of others. Honor. What else did the heavenly audience see? They saw redemption. They saw redemption. See, the whole reason Jesus was crucified was because from the moment of that conflict when mankind sinned against God, there was a statement made, and the day you do it, you shall surely die. And there has been death ever since that moment. And Christ died on the cross to undo that death that we deserved. He died in our place that if we believe in Him, we have life. Eternal. What does that word redemption mean? It means buying back. We in our sinful state have been lost. We've wandered our own way. We've become under the powers of the evil one. And what Jesus did by shedding his blood is he gave his life to purchase us back into a relationship with our creator God. And all that happened on the cross, the earth, the audience didn't see it. But all of the spiritual realm was watching and they saw a purchase being made. A blood being spilt for anyone who would believe and come. And we're seeing that redemption grow as more and more turn from Satan and turn to God. And they're brought back and they're brought into the family of God. Honor, redemption, and the heavenly audience saw triumph. Triumph. You see, the earthly audience saw defeat on Mount Calvary. But there is a spiritual audience which saw triumph. The day mankind fell, God said to Satan, who tricked and tempted them to sin against God, God said to them, from that woman will come one. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. You're going to give a nick on his heel. He's going to crush you. Remember that promise? And I wonder if all throughout history in the Bible, I wonder if Satan thought of that. I wonder if Satan thought of that promise. I wonder if it just rang in his head all throughout history as he gave all of his efforts to turn people away from God, to kill people so that that seed does not rise up, to gain followers so that they do not become that seed. And then this man comes along by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Satan knows that this man, there's something about him. And so immediately he goes and he tempts him when Jesus is in the wilderness. Satan fails. And then there comes a point when Jesus is walking and he he teaches how he's going to go to the cross. Satan hears that. What does he do? He kind of inspires Peter to go and stop him. And what does Jesus say? He turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. 
And I would imagine in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan was pouring all the agony and pouring all the, the, the reality of being crucified into the mind of Jesus. And he was there and so intense that sweat, blood was falling from his forehead and Jesus still did it. And when Jesus died on that cross, Satan bruised his heel, but Christ Almighty crushed his head. And we are living after the climax. God already had the victory. God has the victory. In Colossians chapter 2, the Bible says that when Christ was nailed to the cross, in verse 14, it says that He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross, disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Yeah. You remember, I used this illustration in the past. How is it that in today, you look at the world and you think, I don't see this victory that you're talking about. I don't see this, this victory in this society. How did it happen? You see, I use this illustration when a nation conquers another nation. It's not just they come in and every single town and village is completely taken over and they're just depopulated, repopulated with the new nation. What happens is they come in and they go to the hub. They go to the center. They go to the capital. And they take over the capital. And there's a victory. But then following that, the process is that the nation then spreads out into the areas and starts conquering all the other cities and conquering all the other villages and conquering all the other towns until eventually the whole nation is taken over with the authority of the new leader. And what happened on Calvary is God gained victory over Satan so that he no longer has power over your life if you trust in him. Now you can have victory in your life as you live for God, not under the powers of the law and sin, but under the powers of Almighty God and the Holy Spirit, giving you victory over sin, victory over temptation, and you are now part of that victory as you go out and take that victory to the nations. You now join that victory march. There'll be casualties in the, in, the, in the making. There's still battles being warred, but it's a battle of victory already made. And so what you and I in this church here this morning are a part of, are a part of this grand story bringing the victory of Christ on a cross to those who are under Satan's spell. And to bring the good news to them that there is victory in the name of Jesus Christ. To release them from the powers, release them from the struggles, and bring them into the army and kingdom of Almighty God. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. So don't you forget that although the cross and Mount Calvary to the world's eyes may seem insignificant, shameful, what's the point? Remember, behind the curtain of all of reality is the very climax of history, the most honorable act 
of a human being. The most necessary act for a human being to be reconciled to God and the most triumphant act. So now, the question that Jesus asks us this morning is this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Will you take up your cross? Will you follow Christ to Mount Calvary? Father God in heaven, thank you so much for this story that we're a part of, this reality that we find ourselves in. Lord, I pray that you would give victory to our individual lives, to realize the victory that's in the name of Christ. And Father God, I pray that you would help us bring that dominion across our streets for your glory. I pray if anyone here this morning has not come under your authority, Lord, would they repent of their sin, turn to you for forgiveness, and you would grant them everlasting life. Thank you, Father God, for that wonderful, beautiful, old, rugged cross. May we live for you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.